This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Power in Our Choices. In the first half, David V. Dearden shares his address, The Sacred Gift of Agency. Then in the second half, Stephen W. Little speaks on Without Compulsory Means. One of the key issues in the Council in Heaven, and one of the key differences between our Heavenly Father's plan for us and the plan advocated by Lucifer, was whether or not we would be given agency or the ability to make our own choices. Lucifer argued he could return us all without any need for agency on our part. Lucifer said, Behold, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind that one soul shall not be lost, and surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. But our elder brother said, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power, by the power of mine only begotten I caused that he should be cast down. In the Father's plan, championed by Jesus Christ, agency was integral. In fact, Lucifer's plan could not have worked. Learning to exercise agency is the very essence of learning to be like our Father in Heaven. I am a scientist, and for me, and I hope for you, since you are stuck with it, it is fun to think about what science can teach us about the gospel in general and about agency in particular. For me, science is highly faith-affirming, but I recognize that for some people it is not. I will come back to that later. Many in science have noted what is sometimes referred to as the Goldilocks principle. All the fundamental forces that govern matter in the universe seem to be just right to allow stars, planets, life, and people to exist. If, for example, the force of gravity were only slightly weaker than it is, modern physics suggests that stars could not form because gravity would not be strong enough to hold them together. If there were no stars, there could be no planets and no people. On the other hand, if gravity were slightly stronger than it is, all matter would quickly end up in black holes. Again, these are conditions that do not allow the existence of stars, planets, or you and me. Some have argued that this just rightness of the universe proves the existence of a creator. Others argue that the fact we exist just means we must live in a universe that allows it. Fundamentally, we can't tell which position is right simply through reason. Furthermore, it is important to our sacred gift of agency that this be the case. However, I would like to take this idea of just rightness one step further. Not only do we live in a universe that is just right for us to exist, like the little bear's porridge in the Goldilocks story, but we also live in a universe that is just right to allow us agency the ability to make choices that have consequences. From the time of Isaac Newton until the early 20th century, it was believed that the universe was completely deterministic, that if you knew the starting conditions and all the rules, that everything in the universe, from galaxies and stars down to atoms and electrons, would have to play by those rules, and you could mathematically determine everything that would happen in the future. In a universe like that, 2 plus 2 would always equal 4, and every decision would likewise be predictable by an equation. There would be no agency because all actions and all results would depend ultimately on how things were set up in the beginning. Every action would be a consequence of the way things were created, and there could be no free will. However, by the early 20th century, this view began to change. A fundamental concept of modern physics and chemistry is known as the uncertainty principle. This is a scientific statement that claims there are limits to how accurately we can measure such things as the position and speed of an electron. We don't have time to talk about the reasoning behind the uncertainty principle, but it's well established and accepted, and it's one of the key ideas that helps us understand scientifically the way the universe functions. Quantum uncertainty explains why atoms behave the way they do. It's important in chemical bonding. Uncertainty is a key part of how practical devices like transistors and lasers work. According to the uncertainty principle, there's a built-in uncertainty in the way small things like electrons and atoms behave. 
We can say what they'll probably do, but we can't predict individual events with certainty. I find it fascinating that the biochemistry of thought and decisions of signal transmission in neurons occurs at the level of electrons and atoms where quantum uncertainty operates and behavior is not deterministic. At this level, we can't always predict exactly what will happen. Therefore, this basic idea of quantum mechanics suggests that our thoughts and decisions are not deterministic. At the same time, uncertainty only becomes important for very small particles like electrons and atoms. For larger things, we can make accurate predictions. This is important, too, because otherwise all would be chaos. Instead, after we make choices, consequences inevitably follow. Therefore, we live in a universe that's predictable enough that our actions have consequences, but not so predictable that it's deterministic. It's as if the Lord designed the very fabric of the universe in such a way as to guarantee us the opportunity of agency, but also demanding consequences to the way we use our agency. Thus, not only do we live in a universe that's just right to allow human existence, it's also just right to give us the sacred gift of agency. Now, none of this is surprising when viewed in the light of the gospel. In fact, we know a lot more about agency from the scriptures than we know from science. Agency is a key part of the plan of salvation, and learning to use it is one of the main purposes of mortality. Consider how precious is the gift of agency in the eyes of God. He gave us a universe whose very fabric allows it. We pass through the veil and come into this life without memory of the preexistence so that we can have it. We live now by faith so that we can have it. We face adversity and opposition so that we can have it. God's Son and our elder brother, Jesus Christ, suffered and died so that we can have it. Agency truly is a sacred gift. Much as I love science as a means for discovering truth, my life's experience suggests that it will never be possible to arrive at full spiritual knowledge by purely scientific methods. I know this because if such a course were possible, it would destroy our agency, and the Lord doesn't work that way. Agency is sacred. If we could prove the gospel true and always know how to act purely through reason or logic or science or a formula, only choices in accord with the gospel would be reasonable or acceptable. Correct choices would become obvious with minimal effort on our part. And that was essentially the plan that all of us rejected in the preexistence. Although sometimes our choices do have consequences that limit our future choices, our Father in Heaven never compromises our agency. The practical question for us, then, is how do we learn to use the precious gift of agency given to us by our Heavenly Father? This question is critically important for all of us every day. It's what life is about. Let me suggest four things to keep in mind as you use your agency. One, choose in the light of the gospel. Two. Remember that help is always available if you will stay in tune. Three, little choices matter because they add up to make big ones. And four, know that ultimately the choice is yours. Let's talk about choosing in the light of the gospel. I love the words of Mormon recorded by his son Moroni in Moroni 7. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge that ye may know good from evil, and the way to judge is as plain that ye may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore I show unto you the way to judge, for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and deny him, and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. Wherefore I beseech of you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. And if ye will lay hold upon every good thing, and condemn it not, 
ye certainly will be a child of Christ. According to Mormon, our choices are clear. However, our agency is not compromised. We still have to learn and understand the ways of Christ, and we have to choose whether or not to follow Him. If we will consider the consequences of our choices and whether they lead us toward the Savior or away from Him, we will use our agency well. Second, because He loves us, the Lord does not leave us without help in using our agency, but He does it in such a way that our agency is always preserved. As a consequence of our choice to make sacred baptismal covenants, we have been given another sacred gift to assist us, the gift of the Holy Ghost. At the time we make covenants to live the gospel, the Lord gives us exactly the help we need to keep those covenants as we exercise our agency. It's crucial that we live so that this gift can operate and bless our lives so that we can choose correctly. The Holy Ghost has been compared to a still small voice. As such, we must be careful to not to let the frenzied loud voices of the world drown out the promptings of the Spirit. The Spirit's like a faraway radio station, which can be heard strongly when the radio is in tune. But the still small voice can easily be drowned out by noise if our lives are not in tune. Sins of commission are a sure way to let this happen. They can cause so much noise that it may damage the receiver, and we require the repairs the Savior can make. Sins of omission are perhaps just as bad. They seem smaller and more innocent, so it's easier for them to sneak up on us. They are just little things, aren't they? Those little things we can be prone to neglect like reading the scriptures and daily sincere prayer, are what keep our hearts in tune so that the signal of the Spirit remains strong. That's why these little things are so important. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? His sad story shows that it's possible to make mostly right choices but still let little things get in the way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record what happened. I'll quote from Mark. We read that a certain rich young ruler came to the Savior and asked about what he could do to inherit eternal life. The Savior told him to keep the commandments. When he affirmed that he had done so from his youth up, the Lord told him there was one little thing he lacked. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. His love of wealth held him back. He was not able to give up the things of the world, and so did not choose well. Perhaps he could have been a Peter, or a James, or a John. We don't know. Do we have cares of the world that prevent us from exercising our sacred gift of agency righteously? They might even be simple things like being too busy to stop and care for those we home teach or visit teach. The Lord wants to bless us and will if we allow Him to do so. Sometimes it is the little things that matter. Finally, remember that no one can exercise your agency for you. The Lord certainly will not. That does not accomplish what we are here to do. That doesn't teach us the things we must learn. As Oliver Cowdery learned when attempting to translate, we need to make our best decision first before we ask the Lord if it is right. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. When we do ask, I believe the most common answer for one who is living the gospel and is already tuned to the Spirit will likely be, you decide. The Lord does not tell us this because He doesn't care or because He doesn't want to help, but precisely because He does care and He does love us. It blesses us to learn to use our agency on our own. That's why we're here. A number of important opportunities to use our agency usually occur around the college years for many people. For instance, um, 
What major should I choose? What career should I pursue? Should I serve a mission? Who should I date? Who should I marry? When should we begin a family? What do I believe? How will I act on my beliefs? I'll touch on just a few of these. How do you choose a major and a career? Some of you are having trouble with this and have changed your minds a few times. That's okay. Please indulge me as I tell you how I made that choice. I grew up with a love for science. I guess I was a nerd, but I didn't know it until later when my wife told me. <laughs> However, I didn't have much exposure to chemistry until one summer during high school when I participated in a chemistry program at that excellent university up to the north. I found chemistry was fun and that I had some aptitude, so I decided to major in it. I got to BYU and promptly bombed my first chemistry exam. I feared I'd made a bad choice, but fortunately our professor had mercy on us and made it possible to overcome that stumble. After that, I made the adjustment to college and did okay. On my mission, I discovered that I also loved teaching. I found great joy in seeing the lights come on in someone else's eyes. I returned home and wondered if I might be able to combine these things and become a chemistry professor. My resolve became stronger as I observed the examples of my professors and saw a little of their family life through some good friends whose parents worked at the university. What I saw was compatible with my goals of having a family and of being able to serve others, and my choice was confirmed as I went forward. One of the great experiences of my life came as I was beginning my independent career as a faculty member at the University of Texas at Arlington. Paul had a great experience on the road to Damascus, and I had my own on the road to Dallas. No, I didn't see the Savior as Paul did. But I did experience his love, and I got to see how many little, seemingly less important choices added up to bless me. I was trying hard to raise a family and to serve faithfully in the Church. It's challenging to do that as a young assistant professor. I'd taken the job planning to pursue a certain course of research that appeared to have good opportunities for funding. I set up my lab and needed a test problem to check whether or not my instruments were working. I wasn't quite ready to do what I had originally planned, and I remembered some work I had done years before as an undergraduate at BYU. This gave me an idea for a new experiment. It wasn't a big deal, but I tried it, and then it worked. I wanted to attend a scientific meeting that I thought would further my career. I needed something to present at the conference because the university required me to present in order to get the trip paid for. So I took the results of my test experiment and drove 700 miles from Dallas to Nashville to attend the meeting. It was just a poster presentation, one among hundreds, but I was shocked at the strongly positive response I received. I had to drive the 700 miles home by myself, and that was when the revelation began. All the way home, it was as if I heard a voice saying over and over, Drop your original plans and pursue this other course of research. I did, and that choice laid the foundation for my entire subsequent career. In part, that's why I'm here at BYU today. It may not have won a Nobel Prize, but the choice was a good one. It came after much thought and much hard work, and led to much more thought and hard work. I still don't know if the Lord cares about the science I did. I doubt it matters at all to Him. But I do know for sure that He loves me and my family, and that matters a lot. It has blessed my life. Some of you face the choice of whom to marry. Quoting Elder Bruce R. McConkie, President Thomas S. Monson has said, The most important single thing that any Latter-day Saint ever does in this world is to marry the right person in the right place by the right authority. I think that if this is not the most important decision we'll make in our entire eternal existence, it certainly must be in the top ten. I came home from my mission with the desire to make that choice. I dated. I learned a lot from some wonderful people, but things never quite seemed to click. Horror of horrors, I graduated from BYU single. 
I wondered if there was something wrong with me. But the only thing that was really wrong was that the time was not right. I needed to be in the same place as the other who would choose me. I needed to develop talents that would be attractive to her. I had to learn to distinguish between my own feelings and the confirming voice of the Spirit. But when the time was right, the choices were made, and calm, peaceful confirmation then followed. I made the best choice ever, and that has been a foundation for the greatest blessings in my life ever since. Let me give one final example. One of the most important choices we have to make is actually the same choice we already made following the counsel in heaven, a choice to believe the Father and to follow Christ. Because we have passed through the veil, which is essential for our agency and mortality, we don't remember our earlier choice, and now, in faith, we must continue to choose. Well-meaning people may honestly disagree with my interpretation of how the universe is put together and of the way science works. Agency allows and requires this possibility. But for me, as I noted above, science is faith-affirming because I choose to believe, and everything else follows. At some point in our lives, we all face the choice to believe in one way or another. It may come in little things we choose to do every day. It may come in big life decisions, like the decision to be baptized, or it often comes in combinations of these. I was raised in the gospel, and in my early years, most of my testimony I owed to the example of my parents. For me, the critical point in the choice to believe came the year after I returned to BYU from my mission. I had a wonderful experience as a missionary and had the opportunity to teach the plan of salvation and the resurrection. I taught of priesthood power and of blessings and did so in sincerity and faith. However, all of this took on new meaning in that year after I came home. As the person I was closest to in all the world, my father, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Suddenly, the doctrine of the gospel became more than theory, and I had to decide what I really believed. Was there really power in priesthood blessings if my dad did not get better? Would I ever really see him again? Do the covenants we make and the blessings we are promised in the temple with regard to eternal families have meaning? I had to make that choice to believe, to go forward in faith. I testify that my own life has been richly blessed because I chose then to believe and to try to live in accord with that belief and because I continue to make that choice in the simple words of the poet Robert Frost, and that has made all the difference. Quantum uncertainty may turn out to be as incomplete a view of the universe as the Newtonian determinism that came before, but it doesn't matter because I've chosen to believe, and that choice has been confirmed by the Spirit many times over. It has made all the difference. If you struggle with the choice to believe, take comfort in the fact that all you need to begin is a desire, as Alma taught the Zoramite poor. But behold, if ye will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment—and I love that word, experiment— an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith. Yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. Let that desire work in you. Experience the joy that will come as you choose good and your agency takes you upward. May the Lord bless all of us as we use the sacred gift of agency wisely. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Power in Our Choices. We've just heard from David V. Dearden. After the break, we'll return with Stephen W. Little for Without Compulsory Means. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus.
Our theme today is Power in Our Choices. Next is Stephen W. Little, Academic Director of the Rollins Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology and a Professor of Information Systems at BYU at the time of this address, titled Without Compulsory Means. I was born in Mountain View, California, the second of eventually 11 children. We settled in a relatively quiet neighborhood on the east side of San Jose, not far from the rolling foothills that are crowned by the imposing Mount Hamilton, home to the Lick Observatory, the first permanently occupied mountaintop observatory in the world. The weather was usually pleasant, even during the warm, sunny days of summer. As spring yielded to summer, the foothills would turn from verdant green to a cozy, warm brown. But even on hot days, a cool breeze would flow off the bay every afternoon, just as temperatures were peaking for the day. Our subdivision consisted of a single principal street with four cul-de-sacs branching off towards the east. To the south was a walnut orchard that, in a child's mind, seemed dark and foreboding. The stuff of fairy tales by the Brothers Grimm. To the east was a large strawberry field. One day, Mom sent my older brother Jim and me out to pick strawberries. I remember doing a lot of picking and eating. I don't remember bringing much home in the bowl she gave us. Shortly thereafter, bulldozers and earth movers took over, and Interstate 680 came to our neighborhood. The walnut orchard also gave way to construction. Silicon Valley had to be built, and it seemed we were in the middle of it. When I was 14 years old, my father decided to purchase a microcomputer kit. This seemed like a sensible activity for a systems analyst in the middle of Silicon Valley. He chose the Heathkit H89, and it was amazing. It was as amazing in 1979 as an iPad is today. Now, sorry to get a little nerdy here, but I need to paint the picture properly. The H89 was an all-in-one model with a keyboard and 12-inch display built right in. Its brain was an 8-bit CPU. It was a Zilog brand Z80 that ran at more than 2 megahertz. That's more than 2 million clock cycles per second. The kit came standard with 16K of RAM. But since Dad bought three expansion packs over time, we eventually had an entire 56K of RAM in which to lose ourselves. In contrast, a typical smartphone today has billions of bytes of RAM and executes billions of clock cycles each second. Dad let us older boys help build the thing, but as I recall, I was the most zealous deputy in the bunch. We had to bolt and solder all sorts of parts together. And soon enough, here was this box, a true marvel of engineering and a testament not only to mankind's creativity, but also to our ability to follow complex instructions and manipulate tiny parts. Here it was, sitting on our kitchen table, with its fan purring, enthusiastically waiting for that next instruction to come in from its mass storage device, a cassette tape recorder. Yes, it took another upgrade before we could use modern, high-capacity floppy disk technology. The computer was built, so what next? I had to learn how to program it. I knew how it was assembled, but I didn't know how it worked, and I couldn't leave it alone. Jim was a year ahead of me in school, and he was already attending the digital computer programming class at our high school, Independence High. I was a lowly freshman and hadn't yet risen to those lofty ranks where you could get into Mr. McKell's class and learn the secrets to life, the universe, and digital computers. So I pestered Jim with questions, trying to absorb everything I could about the art of computer programming. Eventually, I learned to program in BASIC, then Fortran, and then in the Z80 CPU's assembly language. Ah, those were halcyon days. My teenage fascination with software development grew into a lifelong love affair. I had found my calling in life. Computer science was the discipline for me, and I knew it. I love the process of creating software. You start essentially with a blank canvas and order the universe the way you want to order it. You create a computer program very literally as Isaiah described it, line upon line, line upon line. <laughs> Here a little and there a little. And then when you run your program, that faithful computer companion does exactly what you've told it to do. Absent a hardware failure or other unusual event, the computer exhibits a remarkable trait, 
In it there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning or changing. The computer reminds me of the amazing stripling warriors in the Book of Mormon. Helaman reported that in battle they did obey and observed to perform every word of command with exactness. The results of that obedience were astonishing, even miraculous. To an older brother with lots of younger siblings, that was all the more incredible. Have you ever tried to get your younger brothers or sisters to follow your instructions primarily on the strength of your status as the older sibling? It's hard and not particularly successful in my experience. Well, I had experienced an epiphany, a revelation. Here was this device ready and willing, even eager, to do my bidding to the letter. I could be king, absolute ruler and sovereign in this kingdom of the H-89. Later, when I read Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, something resonated with me. All kingdoms have a law given, and there are many kingdoms, for there is no space in which there is no kingdom, either a greater or a lesser kingdom. And unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds also and conditions. Software development is a kingdom, albeit a lesser kingdom. And thus it is given a law, and to that law we find certain bounds also and conditions. There is in some sense a finiteness to the laws of this lesser kingdom. As a PhD student, I learned that a simple language with just three particular types of statements is sufficient to write any computable function. Certainly for software development, out of small things proceedeth that which is great. I have a hope of being able to master those laws and thus have dominion over this kingdom. Dominion, which means sovereignty or control, is a dangerous word in the modern context. Certainly we tend to think of those who are domineering in a negative light, and we read about unrighteous dominion in the scriptures. No Latter-day Saint wants to be labeled as someone who exercises unrighteous dominion. But there is also a kind of righteous dominion. The first place we see the word used is in the creation account. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Righteous dominion is more akin to the concept of stewardship, not dominance. There are many positive references to dominion in the scriptures. The psalmist declared of the Lord, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And... Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Joseph Smith the prophet and Sidney Rigdon, who saw in vision the kingdoms of glory, noted that dominion increased in the higher kingdoms. For example, we saw the glory of the terrestrial, which excels in all things the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. They went on to note that those who dwell in the celestial kingdom inherit glory that exceeds all, and that they are equal in power and in might and in dominion. This is the kind of dominion we want. Dominion will be our heritage in the next life to the extent that we are true to our covenants and obey the laws, bounds, and conditions that lead to exaltation. I love the way Section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes this process. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, or in other words, by virtue of a statement of some authority or status, because I said so. Instead, we acquire power and exert influence by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Something interesting happens as we walk this path and behave according to these principles. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever.
We want to have influence, or in other words, power. We are here at Brigham Young University to learn how to become more influential. Each one of us wants to change and bless the world in some way. To do that, we need knowledge, skills, and connections to opportunities. How do we acquire this influence? By becoming more like the Savior, in gentle and meek ways, with genuine love and kindness. We need pure knowledge and authentic genuineness and charity, the pure love of Christ. These can at times be difficult to remember, such as when project deadlines are approaching or it is final exam week. Pressures build, sometimes we cram and try to force the required knowledge into our brains, or we try to find a quick and easy solution on the web. The fact that we're taking a college course does not entitle us to a particular set of knowledge. Rather, we must earn it the same way everyone else must, walking the path of long-suffering patience. Rather than try to force our way, we should instead seek for that distilling as the dues from heaven that leads to a condition where we don't need to try to force it because without compulsory means, it comes naturally. My mother taught me to love the writings of John Steinbeck. There was a copy of The Grapes of Wrath in our bookcase. And when I was old enough, not only was I enriched by reading it, but I actually enjoyed it. Eventually, I found my way to East of Eden, the work that Steinbeck apparently considered his magnum opus. I was fascinated by the novel and its exploration of the universal story of Cain and Abel as set in 19th and 20th century America, among families any of us might recognize, people who could be us or our neighbors. In Chapter 24, Steinbeck has the character named Lee give an account of studying the Cain and Abel story. He focused in particular on Genesis 4-7, which the King James Version of the Bible translates as, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. However, in the American Standard Version, the last phrase is rendered, But do thou rule over him instead of thou shalt. The underlying Hebrew word that leads to the differences in translation is rendered by Steinbeck as Tim Shell, and it means essentially you may. The character Lee explains it in the following key passage from East of Eden. Don't you see, he cried, the American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin. The King James Translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshel, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on a man. For if thou mayest, it is also true that thou mayest not. Don't you see? Lee continues. Thou mayest. Why, that makes a man great. That gives him stature with the gods. For in his weakness and his filth, he has still the great choice. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. Steinbeck wove this concept masterfully through the story of the families in East of Eden. But this is our story, too. For each one of us, this statement is true. Thou mayest or thou mayest not. The choice is ours. Father Lehi told his son Jacob, We are free to choose. In modern revelation, the Lord declared that men and women should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness, for the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. Within us lies the power of choice. Unlike that trusty H89 computer, we do not merely mechanically perform whatever is commanded of us. Rather, like my younger siblings, we choose and then do according to our choice. Because of the Savior's atonement, we are redeemed from the fall and thus have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for ourselves and not to be acted upon. What will you and I do with our agency? Will we learn, improve, develop our talents? We hope that every member of the BYU community will experience the aims of a BYU education. A BYU education should be spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, character building, leading to lifelong learning and service. So my question to you is, 
Will these aims be achieved regardless of your agency? Of course, the answer is no. You must choose to accomplish them. None of us who serve as faculty members can impose these aims upon you, nor can any external force. Thou mayest. We can encourage, entice, engage, and invite, but whether you experience these outcomes depends significantly on what you are willing to invest in this quest for an education. Will your testimony and spiritual preparation grow as a result of the things you learn? It's your choice. Will you dig in and really learn, or will you just get far enough into the material to do well enough on the exams to earn the grade you want? It's your choice. Will you expand upon what your instructors teach and explore on your own outside of class and independent of course requirements? Or will you simply accept what they present and be done with it? It's your choice. At the Marriott School, Dean Lee Perry often reminds us that we should be difference makers. Is that what you will become, a difference maker? Or will you be satisfied simply with making it through? Again, it's your choice. We faculty are pleased as we see the majority of students making the most of their BYU experience. The Lord taught His Latter-day Saints that we are to actively seek learning, and indeed that we are to collectively seek this learning. He declared, And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. He invites us to employ our agency in learning and helping others to learn. Is that not a primary purpose of mortality? For whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. The Savior repeatedly invites us to learn. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That sounds to me like experiential learning. Also, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Have you ever asked, what should my major be? Shall we read what the Lord wants us to study? He gave a list. The commandment is to learn of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms. Okay, maybe that doesn't answer your question about a major. But whether it's astronomy, geography, geology, history, political science, nursing, computer science, information systems, or any other subject, we are under a divine mandate to acquire a broad and deep education so that we can magnify our callings and fulfill our missions. To be learned is good, Jacob taught, when we hearken unto the counsels of God. We are to exercise our agency, take control of our educational agenda, and learn what we decide we will need for our particular mission. Thou mayest. Faculty members have significant degrees of freedom in selecting the research projects we wish to undertake. More than a decade ago, a colleague from another college, Richard Galbraith, approached me with a scripture citation index he wanted to share with others. He had indexed the General Conference talks from 1942 to the present, and he had also gone through the Journal of Discourses and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith to annotate those materials with scriptures that were used or cited by the authors. My colleague's key insight was that indexing the conference talks by scripture cited ties the words of ancient and modern prophets together in a way that helps us learn effectively. Dick had typed up this citation index in several different WordPerfect files, and he wanted my help to distribute his work. As I recall the conversation, it went something like this. Steve, would you help me put these on CD-ROM so I can share them with my friends? My answer, no. Let's make a website instead. Over the years, I've had the help of many students, including most recently my own daughter, Rosie, who just graduated with her Master of Information Systems Management degree. As we have created multiple versions of the LDS Scripture Citation Index for the web and for mobile devices. Currently, the iOS version is the easiest to use, and the web version is the most feature-rich. You can find it at scriptures.byu.edu. This project has made a huge impact in my work and in my life. I have been able to study web and mobile software development techniques because of this work. 
thousands of people, including me, have been able to use the citation index over the years to enhance their learning. We live in a world where knowledge of all kinds is readily available. Ancient prophets saw a day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is my sincere hope that the Citation Index contributes to this vision in some small way. I am a better researcher and teacher because of my choice to develop this software. And this is just one of many useful and interesting projects in which I have been able to participate during my career. Most of the BYU faculty members I know feel the same way. What a joy it is to exercise our agency in the advancement of knowledge and building our students in, according, in accordance with the aims of a BYU education. My Ph.D. advisor, David Embley, retired from BYU not long ago, and he is now serving a church service mission at FamilySearch with the goal of applying our data extraction research to the task of making family history texts more accessible. He's having so much fun, he reminds me of a kid in a candy store. And it's not just faculty who feel this way. As academic director of the Rollins Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, I have the privilege of working with many successful entrepreneurs who support the Center and have joined what we call our Founders Organization. These men and women mentor BYU students because they want to give back and help build the kingdom. I often receive emails reporting how one of our entrepreneur mentors has touched the life of a student in a deep and significant way changing the mindset and even career direction of a student whose imagination they have opened to new vistas. I know that this is a real experience for our students because it has also happened to me. Dear friends among the Founders have changed my life, taught me, and helped me better achieve my potential. The Founders are eager learners who want to grow, they want to create, they want to build. They use their agency and they marshal all kinds of resources to build BYU students. An entrepreneur identifies an important pain that people are experiencing in their life, explores possible solutions, and then delivers a sustainable solution to eliminate it. Entrepreneurs don't let anything stand in their way. As I see it, entrepreneurship is all about exercising agency to learn how to do good and then using that agency and that learning to make the world a better place. President Thomas S. Monson recently reminded us of another aspect that relates agency, learning, and faith. He said, May we choose to build up within ourselves a great and powerful faith which will be our most effective defense against the designs of the adversary, a real faith, the kind of faith which will sustain us and will bolster our desire to choose the right. Without such faith, we can go nowhere. With it, we can accomplish our goals. Faith is a choice we make. We can choose to build up faith. Brothers and sisters, we can learn by faith, and we can also live in true joy by faith, guided by the Holy Spirit, through whose power we may know the truth of all things. In Gethsemane, Jesus Christ was faced with a choice whether to partake of the bitter cup or to shirk this most difficult of responsibilities. To our everlasting benefit, he yielded to the will of Heavenly Father. When he made this singularly momentous choice, the hinge upon which the entire plan of salvation turned, he learned how to accomplish the atonement. And as Isaiah expressed it, by his knowledge, this righteous servant justified many. And with his stripes, we are healed. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf recently taught us that if you will only lift up your heart to the Savior of the world, he will find you. He will rescue you. He will lift you up and place you on his shoulders. He will carry you home. This power came from knowledge, from learning, and from righteous exercise of agency. What will you and I learn with our agency? What will we do with that learning? The Lick Observatory that I admired from afar as a child sits at an altitude of 4,209 feet. The altitude of my home in Orem is approximately 4,900 feet. Literally and symbolically, I start my day well above the tallest thing I could see as a child. Likewise, I have grown and have learned a tremendous amount since those days. 
my agency has increased. And at the same time, I know so very much more than I did decades ago. Perhaps that is saying the same thing. By exercise of agency, we learn. And by learning, we increase our capability to act, which is agency. I returned to the H89 computer of my youth. I had wanted to control my younger siblings, but found that not to be in keeping with the eternal principle of agency. They were not things to be acted upon. However, the computer was. But it was also a spark that ignited a fire within me to learn the laws of software development. Because I was driven by desire to learn, this effort did not feel strenuous, but rather it was a joy to learn. And that fire burns today. I have a commitment to lifelong learning in this my chosen discipline and also in the gospel. Have you ever been absorbed by a project? Have you ever been driven internally by a goal you wished to accomplish? I believe that when we exercise our agency to learn, grow, and accomplish good in this world, when we apply the principles of righteousness, our influence will naturally increase. As we continue on this path, one day we will look back and see that our dominion has become an everlasting dominion. And without compulsory means, it shall flow unto us forever and ever. I pray that each one of us will be able to find joy in learning without compulsory means. I testify that the power of the atonement is real. Jesus Christ is our Lord and God, the Redeemer of the world. He can heal us in all things, and He has marked the path for us. May each of us follow our Savior as we work to achieve the aims of this unique university and carry out the special mission with which we, individually and collectively, have been commissioned. And may Heavenly Father bless each of us to find joy in that process, guided by faith and by the Spirit. The power is in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Power in Our Choices, with thoughts from David V. Dearden and Stephen W. Little. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.